Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. I'm Rishi Desai, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Andrew Grauer, co-founder and CEO of Course Hero, an online learning platform where students access millions of course-specific study resources contributed by a community of students and educators. More than 50,000 faculty across the US, Canada, and Australia have joined the Course Hero educator community. The site also offers 24-7 tutoring. Andrew started the company back in 2006 while still a student himself at Cornell University. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Rishi. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, maybe we can start with your background and how you managed to, to start a company while you're still in college. How did that happen or what was that like? Uh, I feel pretty lucky. I mean, it was sophomore year of college and I, it's almost like it was an extracurricular or a hobby uh, and putting together a, a, a club on campus. And uh, we met up uh, in the engineering quad at the library and, uh, you know, we were building this while we were also students in college. So what was the impetus for doing this? I mean, most, most students in college are trying to figure out how to get a few more hours of sleep or maybe find a free pizza or a free meal. You're building Coursera. So what was the, the motivation for doing that? 2020 hindsight bias here, uh, 15 years ago almost now. Uh, but, you know, first of all, I was just building out of empathy. Uh, you know, I, I, I was a student and we were building for students. And I think that's probably the luckiest and most important thing uh, about building Coursera was we were solving for our own pain points and getting better help when I needed it. Uh, and, you know, it was clearly inefficient. It felt awkward sometimes to get help, potentially disingenuous, not available when I needed it. So just getting more accessible, on-demand quality help to, to learn in, in class was the problem and the opportunity. You know, then trying to translate that into a product visual, we had in our heads that this was basically like a Wikipedia, but instead of with encyclopedic topic ontology, it was built around a school's course catalog uh, and course ontology. And that gave us a shared visual of, hey, how to, start helping students connect with a platform, a library, um, as opposed to trying to find directly a tutor, a classmate, professor out of class, TA out of class to connect with to then get to the knowledge. We are helping uh, students be able to anytime, anywhere, go connect to the knowledge directly that came from others. And so that was the direction that we were running in and the, 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 the thinking and you know, for me, didn't have any of the analogous experiences as being a first time entrepreneur to kind of learn from and have that pattern recognition. It really was, uh, I got confidence to just jump in. Around that time, I was taking a, a lecture series course, entrepreneurship lecture series course at Cornell, and it brought in a number of uh, successful alumni uh, that were speaking about how they built these large, successful, complex um, organizations. But if they really rewound to the beginning, it was all very simple. And these things that become really complex over time is just a compounding set of simple decisions throughout time. 
And, and you know, here successful people come in and just tell me, you know, the most important thing is to just, you know, do it. Uh, and I don't know if they're channeling their, their, you know, their Nike there to just, just do it. And then once going, just keep going. That was powerful. It, it, it's one of the things that still sticks with me of, hey, how did I jump in uh, and get going, even though I knew so little at the time? So a couple of interesting ideas you brought up, you know, this idea of compounding simple ideas, that's a really cool way of framing it. The other thing that you said is that you put an ontology together because you kind of had this idea of what you saw with Wikipedia and kind of morphed into what you needed. It's one thing to create an ontology when there's when nothing exists, but that's not the situation that you had. You had a framework of school and professors. and So how did they reconcile an existing ontology with this kind of new one that you were trying to kind of superimpose? How, how did that go over? Yeah, I think, you know, if, if we take this just high level concept of aggregating, organizing, and disseminating information uh, related to academics, but even more specifically to, you know, a course ontology, uh, next to obviously related to a subject ontology, um, or related to literature titles or textbook titles or things that are learned or taught in class, in schools, in different programs. That concept was, was really powerful. There already has been, you know, lots of different libraries and platforms and corpuses of content uh, available in the world, but trying to figure out, you know, how do you take these relatively siloed and inefficient structures of content that you know, uh, students have, um, teachers have, um, are shared to limited audiences, very limited audiences um, for short amount of time, and then there's so much wastage. It's always been about, like, how do you create a, an ecosystem and a set of incentives to want um, different players to participate. And uh, I, I know, yeah, one, one, of, one of the uh, pieces of advice that was given to me at the time was, Andrew, if you build it, uh, they will come. And you know, this was back in the time of uh, YouTube or, or, or uh, Google, uh, relatively early days. I took it as maybe some of the worst advice I'd ever gotten because as soon as we launched it, they did not come. You know, I think uh, for us, <laughs> uh, really thinking about what is really going on in, in students' heads, um, tutors, educators, and, and figuring out what would make them want to participate on the platform it really became a, an ongoing way of thinking um, to inform product development over time. It's a really interesting story. And I've often heard the exact same advice, if you build it, they will come. And they didn't initially, but now they have. So what changed? Like what what was it that you guys did differently? What was it that that learners then kind of evolved? Maybe just time, marketing. Like what was it that that caused them to initially not come and then come? You you mentioned time, and I think having a dream is super powerful. I think it energizes me. It energizes um, those on our team about why are we doing this in the first place? How do we make a more open, larger, accessible platform that provides tutoring-like help, support to millions and millions of students. Like that's an amazing dream to provide better, more affordable access to learning and teaching. Uh, that's like, that's powerful. But then when you bring it back to today, you know, or launch time at any moment in time, today versus dream is such a dichotomy. And I think being willing to do a lot of small steps is key. I, I really think that um, grittiness, 
on top of passion is super important for aggregating content, building tools, building services um, iteratively, trying to figure out what drives traffic, what is a go-to-market strategy, letting it bake and marinate, if you will, and then figuring out what is a business model on top of that. And once you even have that sort of flywheel of content and tools to distribution, to subscribers, to more contributors, and letting it compound over years, that's so easy to say, but so hard to do. So I think really being proud of small wins, um, I'd say, in, in terms of you know, search engine optimization, conversion rate optimization, user research that then leads to a new feature, multiple failures, but then one successful one, even, even if it's a 5% win in terms of user satisfaction, in terms of traffic. The, the thing is that it, it ultimately makes the platform better and better over time is a way to connect kind of short-term wins with um, building towards a long-term vision. When you describe this to students or when you talk to faculty, how do you explain it to them so they can kind of take the world that they know, you know, you, course is in the name. And so I, I can wrap my head around that. Let's say as a student or faculty, I'm like, yep, I've done it for 10 years. I know what a course is. Walk me through what Course Hero is in a way that I can really like tangibly understand. Like what, what would that sound like to a student versus a faculty and how different are they? Course Hero helps you in your courses. Uh, it helps students get unstuck. You know, a lot of those times when you're, you're raising your hand in class or, or don't feel comfortable raising your hand in class, or then you're working on your problem set and you're stuck on question six and problem set eight of your linear algebra 192 class, and you're stuck there and you don't know where to start, or you think you know, but you're not sure, how do we provide you, you know, um, on-demand tutor-like access and, and trying to build it so that we are fast, we're quality help, and we're affordable help? Uh, that's what we want to be is you're stuck on homework, uh, you need help, we're personalized help on demand um, in a quality way, an affordable way. That's what we want to be building is better content, better tools, better services to do that um, is, is what Coursero strives to be for students. Um, or whether it's practicing for an exam, um, whether it's, it's working on a different lab or paper, we're here to help. And for faculty, We've been building out a platform that now has over 60,000 now U.S. college instructors on the platform. And what we do for them is, similarly to students getting stuck, uh, educators need to find and create teaching uh, materials, assessment materials, and then deliver. And so we're also building a platform that is not just learning resources, but teaching resources on it to, to help faculty. And what we also believe in is amplifying great teachers and great teaching resources. So a, a lot of what we've built out over time is a set of resources to recognize and celebrate amazing teachers and their resources so they can teach their class, but also across classes, across campuses, across geographies, is how we connect um, the idea of a, of a repository of resources for, for educators to help other educators, but also students locally, but also uh, nationally or globally. Through COVID, I know that it's been obviously really disruptive with students, you know, figuring out what to do with, with their classes and whatnot. Um, in some ways, I feel like it's even more disruptive to faculty and, and educators. Um, and I think having that network seems like it'd be quite useful. Have you seen interesting, maybe unexpected things out of this educator network through this last year, year and a half, while everyone's kind of trying to figure out how to deal with COVID-19? 
Yeah, uh, especially when it was just starting, uh, a lot of faculty were asked to go online in a really short amount of time. And, and many educators actually never taught online before. And they had to go learn and, and teach a class fully remotely in a short amount of time, put the class together, and in many cases never uh, even have done a, a class before online. So for us in the educator community that we facilitated and built on, on Course Hero, we almost did a set of office hours, uh, if you will, for, for educators and take faculty who already have developed expertise through their experience teaching online and connect them with other educators and host a number of events, um, share their resources um, to facilitate you know, a fast learning curve for teachers creating a, a better experience in their, their, their teaching environments for their, for their students. Yeah, that was a huge burden and a huge amount of stress was not just put onto students, but on these amazing educators who are trying to you know, do the best in the moment. And uh, what we saw was an explosion of usage from educators on the platform searching so many more resources online for themselves, helping uh, to create better classes, whether it's searching, presentations, assessment materials, um, syllabi, and, and many other types of resources to be able to teach their classes better, in addition to trying to reach students on the platform or students also needing so much more remote help when they're in a remote learning environment. And what about parents? I'm just thinking out loud here, but like, do you see a lot of homeschooling happen where parents jump on, they use Coursera as a supplement for what they're doing and teaching their students uh, in a home environment? Does that, does that happen? Yeah, I, I don't have immediate um, specific metrics on it, but we do know that there's a lot more at home learning um, and facilitated uh, by not just high school students in this case, um, but also the parents. Uh, it's hard to put data to that on our platform explicitly, um, but it's definitely something that has grown. You know, it might regress to an average a bit, but I, I think that will also continue to be a macro trend that happens through COVID and afterwards. So if I'm a higher ed institution, you know, 50 years ago, a lot of my value was in my brick and mortar lecture halls and the magic that was happening in those halls. And when you were at Cornell as a student, you felt pain, you know, I think that's the word you use pain point. Um, and so a lot of brick and mortar institutions, higher ed institutions are changing their value proposition, right? They, they can't be what it used to be 50 years ago. What do you think are some of the trends that maybe got accelerated by COVID, but are some of the macro trends in higher ed specifically that that you're noticing that probably won't regress uh, after COVID is over? Related to my previous comment, I do think that crises tend to accelerate change, uh, things that have already been in motion, and they will continue post crises. In, in the case of remote learning, you know, it's been a decade long trend of more institutions hosting more online classes and more fully online institutions um, sprouting up and growing. And uh, yeah, I think that trend will, will continue. I think some of the things that are different in this case is I don't think that, you know, there will be a lot of power in institutions providing an experience that cannot be replicated online. I think that people actually underestimate, undervalue the speed at which actually institutions responded 
to the COVID environment. Um, we got to see that firsthand in what educators did, what students did. Um, there was obviously a lot of friction. There was a lot of stress, but I think that it makes the system stronger. We actually moved to have a day that is back-to-back -back Zoom school for students, just like we're experiencing in the work environment, is quite stressful and probably not the best way to learn. And I think we, we, we saw a lot of efficiencies. We increased a lot of accessibility. I think accessibility, flexibility, quality of pre-created materials and environments and tools is powerful. Um, that won't go away because one can increase the quality of tools, production value when you can um, create it in advance and reuse it over and over. The quality goes up, the cost is down, and you can do things that you just can't do in person. But in person, there are so many things from relationships to trust to um, brainstorms that one cannot do online. And so I think it's to be seen exactly what the comparative advantages become of in-person versus online. But I think hybrid models are going to be incredibly important, um, just like we're seeing of a lot of the predictions that will be happening in the workplace, I think will be analogous to what happens in higher education. It remains to be seen, but I think the trend towards accessibility, affordability, quality because of scale and reach minus cost is something that will happen um, and continue to happen as more classes, more programs, more certificates are provided by institutions, um, both existing and more innovations within and from outside current institutions. And then I also think that the opportunity for in-person will continue to be strong exactly how that mixes for fully remote versus fully in-person to hybrid remains to be seen. Yeah, and also I, I think to that point, we'll have to define better what is it that we need to be in-person for? What is that activity where in-person makes a lot of sense? What is it where in-person doesn't make a lot of sense? And kind of defining that more concretely will probably help structure out that, that hybrid model. And look, that'll change over time too. You know, depending on what technology can do well and what it can't do well. And uh, whether you can create a great lab experience online, there's innovation happening there versus what you can't do. What sort of conversations and relationships can one build online versus what's better in person? It, it will be an interaction. I think a lot of other challenges have been surfaced, you know, with regards to equity. I think, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic has hit different minority groups much harder. And it's um, concerning what will happen to public funding for community colleges. And you know, there's already been a macro trend of what happens to um, smaller liberal arts colleges and programs. And these are really uh, difficult, complicated topics with regards to the impact of accessibility and affordability for different types of students. I do get I'm very excited, though, about the opportunity of different institutions combined with different technologies to be able to provide more access to great teachers, great content, great tools in a way that it's inherent in the model 
that more students is, is better impact and better business, as opposed to rewarding exclusivity and yield rates. So that's probably a good segue then in terms of given where you are and like the journey you've followed, uh, you started talking about kind of empathy as being a core driver of what got you into this space and what you think about in terms of like how to care for the, the learner's needs. What do, you, what do you think are some things that healthcare professionals, which are a big part of our audience, um, or even educators or healthcare educators should be thinking about as they start kind of imagining what the next five to 10 years looks like down the road? What is some advice that you might might share with them? So many different ways to take that. And in, 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 at Osmosis, you guys are so close to this in, in such a wonderful way. Of course, we also see a lot of students studying in biology and sciences and in healthcare. And I, I think, first of all, when we're developing programs, I, I think we have to get more and more aware of the demographics of those we're serving. You know, so many students in higher education and these programs, uh, they're, they're already adults. You know, they're parents, uh, they're working, they have kids, and, and this is not an outlier minority. This is the new normal. And I think being aware of that uh, and trying to process that in the context of 40% of students go to college and don't graduate within six years of matriculation, is something that is a secular trend uh, and it will continue. I think it's a wonderful thing that there has been here over the last year, an increase in enrollments going into healthcare. That is wonderful to see that sort of humanity in response to a health crisis nationally and globally that uh, people are running at the problem uh, and, and wanna dedicate their lives to do help. On a more individual level, all I can share is a set of values that I believe in, which are, I think, being, being a dreamer, being optimistic, but also being willing to be gritty and persistent uh, to make progress towards the dream uh, through lots of challenges, lots of up and down, and learning from it along the way is not necessarily subject specific. It's really a way of thinking, a way of acting, um, is something that I do think is apropos for any student uh, from my perspective. That's really good advice. And I think that is probably a, a great place to leave it because I think, you know, you set a good example with your own career and your journey. Anyone that knows your story, as you've told it just now, can see how they could potentially model themselves after, after what you've done. And I think it's really cool that you started with the pain point instead of doing what, what I did. And frankly, almost everyone does, which is complain. Uh, you sought out to find a solution. And so I think that solutions kind of oriented mindset is obviously going to be very necessary in the, in the coming years. So thank you for sharing that, that story and for, for joining us today. Thank you, Rishi. Fantastic. Well, I'm Rishi Desai. Thanks for joining today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>